questions um, concerning the issues of the Holy Spirit that we've been meditating on for a while. I cannot find the book of Ephesians in this Bible. There we go. Thank you. New Testament. Okay. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Um, actually, you know what? Let's, let's back up to verse 1, because there's, there's some really good background there. We got time. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all and in all. And here's where we pick up with today's verse. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives and he gave gifts to men. Skip forward to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. And we pray that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. We believe and confess what your word says about itself, that it is alive, that it is active, that it goes forth and accomplishes what you want it to accomplish. It corrects, it rebukes, it exhorts, it trains in righteousness. Sinners tremble under it. The righteous rejoice in it. It is by your word that our hearts are regenerated unto saving faith in Jesus Christ, such that you call being saved, being washed in the water of the word. And so we simply bow before it where there are drums of mutiny about what it might say in our hearts, quiet those drums. Give us peaceable hearts underneath your word. In Jesus' name we pray, 
Amen. Well, I, I have in my hands here a genuine Snap-on Tools ratcheting screwdriver. I've owned this since the early 1990s when I worked as a mechanic. I worked my way through college doing what I called real jobs. I poured concrete. I was a welder in a shipyard. I was a truck driver. I, I put on siding and windows and roofing. And, and, uh, and I drove a wrecker, and I was a mechanic. And for those of you in the know, you know that Snap-on tools are the best tools available. They are professional quality, and though they're less expensive now than they used to be, they're still exquisitely expensive. This screwdriver today costs around $90, but I think back in 1991 or 92, I paid around $120 for this screwdriver. And printed on the handle is a warning, and I put up a photo of the warning so that you can see for yourself. It says, warning, not a pry bar or a chisel. Not a pry bar or a chisel. And with that warning, the manufacturer who designed the tool is telling you something that is very important. The manufacturer is telling you that this screwdriver is a very good screwdriver. It will put screws in and remove screws faster than any other manual hand tool. As a matter of fact, this screwdriver is so good that when I went to use it over and over again, I couldn't find it because my wife had stolen it and not put it back. And so there was one year, I can't remember when it was, but it was before I moved to Sturgis, there was one year where I bought my wife a snap-on ratcheting screwdriver of her own for her birthday, and she liked it. Now that is a coup, guys. And she still got it, thank goodness, because she leaves mine alone now. But if you misuse this screwdriver, if you attempt tasks for which it was not designed, you will destroy it and in all likelihood perhaps injure yourself or somebody else as well. So the manufacturer tells you what the tool is for. The manufacturer tells you how to safely use the tool. And the manufacturer tells you there are certain things you should not do with the tool if you want the right outcome. Now, this is significant because even though the manufacturer doesn't design a normal screwdriver to be used as a pry bar or a chisel, you can usually get away with using one as a pry bar or a chisel. You can take one of those big screwdrivers, just a, a flat-bladed screwdriver that's solid, and you, and you can use it to hold tension on your alternator so that you can tighten the belt down, and you can get away with using it for a pry bar. You can use it to, with a mallet to drive a woodruff key out of a gear shaft, and you can get away with that most of the time. If it's a Phillips head, uh, you can sort of use it as a center punch. You might... You might ruin the plastic handle if you beat on it too hard or too long, but if you're careful, you can generally get away with it, but not with this ratcheting screwdriver. If you do those things with this ratcheting screwdriver, you'll tear it up and you'll have an expensive piece of junk in your hands that Snap-on won't warranty. And the manufacturer wants you to know this. Use it like it was designed to be used and you will get excellent results. Try to do something with it that it's not designed to do, you'll just mess it up 
You'll break stuff, and maybe you'll injure yourself or somebody else to boot because it's not a pry bar or a chisel. Almighty God has called the church into existence. Almighty God has dictated its purpose. He's given it a certain form. He's decreed for it to have certain functions. It is to operate in certain ways and not in others. And he has stamped the church with something like an invisible warning, something like not a pry bar or a chisel. In other words, God says, I am the manufacturer of the church. I know how it's supposed to work. I'm the owner of the church. It's my church and nobody else's. I'm also the manager of the church. I oversee its operations. And the church will do and the church will be what I want it to do or be, or I will come and take away its lampstand as I threatened to do to the church in Ephesus in, Roman, in, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, and which I ultimately did. I will take that lampstand away. So what is the God-appointed task of the church? Well, we find the heart of the matter in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now that word translated as to equip in verse 12 is translated as to perfect in the old King James Version. The King James Version reads, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So in all the old Presbyterian books of church order, you get at the beginning of the book what, uh, what we would call today a mission statement or a vision statement. And, and it says these are the principles by which the whole thing is to be constructed and run. And you get the answer to the question, what is the great end or what is the great purpose of the church? Why did God make it? Why did he call it into ex existence? What's it for? And the answer is that the church exists in order to gather and perfect the saints. Gather and perfect the saints. And that's my first point this morning. The church exists to gather and perfect the saints. Full stop. There is no other lawful, God-given reason why the church is called into existence by God. We're here to gather and perfect the saints. Now, all kinds of people, both within the church and outside of the church, keep trying to come up with all sorts of things for the church to do. Many of them are good things in and of themselves, but they're not what God created and equipped the church for. And so what they're doing, whether they realize it or not, is that they're trying to use the church as a pry bar or a chisel when God created it to be a really good ratcheting screwdriver. And God stamps on the handle of the church, not a pry bar, not a chisel. What's the church for? Gathering and perfecting the saints. 
Now, that word translated as to equip the saints in the ESV or to perfect the saints in the King James Version is actually in ancient Greek a medical term. In the secular Greek, it referred to the setting of a broken bone. And the idea is something's out of place, something's out of joint, and it needs to be put right so that the body can heal and function. It's one of several similar words that refer to repairing or restoring something that's damaged. So think about that for a minute. The church gathers or calls from death to life through the gospel call a person who's lost in sin and darkness. And there's so many things, even though God has saved them, there's so many things about their lives that are out of joint. There's a broken bone here. There's a contusion there. There's a torn ligament, a torn tendon. And their lives aren't running properly. And God says, now we're going to put all those things back together right in your life. So that your life begins to run as I intended for it to run from the beginning. It carries with it the idea of making something complete that's incomplete. The term also carries with it the idea of training or equipping someone so that they're ready to perform a task or a duty competently and effectively. Now, in the Greek mind, perfection had two different meanings. One meaning was like our English meaning, meaning flawless or unblemished, like when we talk about a perfect diamond or a perfect performance at the Olympics, or a perfect tomato. You know, it, it, why is it perfect? Well, there's no flaws in it. Everything is exactly like it's supposed to be. That's really not the, the intention of the way the word is used here. The other meaning in Greek had more to do with fitness, or full development, or maturing. Something was perfect when it had become what it was designed to be. So in this understanding of the word perfect, which is what the Bible's talking about here, a child is imperfect, and a full-grown healthy man or woman is the perfect. Because the child has all the potentialities, but they're not all realized. It's got a body that needs to grow. It's got a mind that needs to grow. It needs to grow in judgment and maturity. And, and so you train the child and you feed the child and you equip the child so that when he or she grows up, they can take their rightful place in society as a full-grown man or woman. And that's the idea that's, that we're using here. The church exists to share the gospel with the lost and to bring those who respond to the gospel call into the life of the church where they are lovingly and patiently brought to maturity in Christ. And that process of transforming unbelieving people into fully equipped, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ is the only hope for our world. You see, the problem with the world is that what we see happening all around us is simply the visible outworking of the corrupted human heart expressed billions and billions of times over each day all around us in ways that are both large and small. The corrupted human heart is the problem with the world. 
That's not the only problem with the world. Uh, Sorry, that's not only the problem with the world. That's also the main problem with your life. It's the main problem with your family. It's the main problem you have at work. It's the main problem with your school. It's that the corrupted human heart is working out its will and its desires, which are wrong. And so if the problem is that the corrupted human heart is wrong and it keeps expressing itself and you try and squash down on one way it expresses itself and it'll find some other way to express its corruption, then you realize that when you try and go and fix one problem, what you discover is three other things get messed up in the process. Therefore, the only way to make this world a better place is to fix substantial numbers of human hearts. Does that make sense? If the problem is the corrupted human heart, the solution has to be the renovation, the repair, the refurbishment of that heart. And only when a substantial number of people are healed and their hearts are set right, then will the world be any better. Therefore, the only way to make the world a better place is to fix their hearts, and the only way to fix the human heart is the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. That's what we're for. And then those saints, as they make their way through the world, will be equipped to resist evil, even to the point of the shedding of their own blood, says Paul. And they will be prepared to do good, even to the point of pouring out their own lives, should God require it. And that's why, loved ones, the New Testament spends zero time instructing the political authorities of the Roman Empire on how they should govern, or anything like that. The New Testament, you can search it from top to bottom, from from beginning to end. You never find a political program for fixing Rome. You don't. The New Testament, however, spends a great deal of time telling Christians how they ought to behave as they interact with the world, as well as spending a great deal of time telling Christians how they ought to treat each other since their hearts are being repaired in a lovely unity and kindness to one another, which is why I decided to read those first few verses of Ephesians 4, is the mark of a heart that's being repaired. There's a contemporary Christian writer named Aaron Wren who wrote something quite striking to me in a 2017 essay called The Lost World of American Evangelicalism. Listen to what he writes. He said, I took an inventory of every single command that Paul issued in the New Testament and divided them into various categories. They are overwhelmingly concerned with unity in the church and personal holiness. There are remarkably few commands that concern the outside world at all. And most of them involve accommodating oneself to it with the least possible disruption, like be in subjection to the governing authorities and pay your taxes and try and remain at peace with all men, etc. Although Paul's mission brought him in conflict with the world, fighting with the world was not on his agenda. He did not try to change any secular political policies. He held people to a very high bar within the church, but the world outside of the church, apart from seeking converts, was not much of a concern. Now, the interesting thing is that 
after about 350 years of gathering and perfecting the saints, there were a large number of deeply committed Christians throughout the Roman Empire who had to be restrained from martyring themselves during times of persecution. The bishops had to tell them, don't seek what they called red martyrdom, the spilling of your blood in the arena, because people, Christians were like, that's what I want to do. I want to I testify to Jesus and to the truth in such a way that in my dying, he is lifted up. And I'll get an audience of 20 or 30,000 people to witness to that way. And, they, and, and the, the bishops had to say, no, no don't. You know, if they come for you and they arrest you and you can't get away, that's fine. But, but don't throw yourself into that. Don't do that. And after 350 years of creating people like that, they did end up making a huge difference in society just because of who they were. An example of this is found in the story of a little monk from Asia Minor, from Turkey, named Telemachus. And I remember encountering this, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years ago in a, in a book by Chuck Swindoll. And, and uh, once again, I love the internet because you can find stuff so easy. I, I went into the library and I searched through every book by Chuck Swindoll in the church library and I, I couldn't find it, but five minutes on the internet and Allie had it for me. So listen to this. Chuck Swindoll tells the story of Telemachus, an Asian monk who lived in a remote village. He spent his days peacefully tending his garden and praying faithfully. One day, however, his peaceful routine was shattered. As he prayed, he heard God's voice speaking to him and telling him to go to Rome. Though he was unsure what God would have for him there in that colossal city, Telemachus obeyed and he began the long walk to Rome. Weeks later, weary from his journey, Telemachus arrived in the city at the time of a great festival. The little monk followed the crowd surging down the streets into the Colosseum. He saw the gladiators stand before the emperor and say, we who are about to die salute you. Then he realized that these men were going to fight to the death for the entertainment of the crowd. In horror, Telemachus cried out, in the name of Christ, stop. As he shouted, he climbed over the wall and he ran straight to the floor of the arena. At first, when the crowd saw this tiny figure rushing to the gladiators saying, in the name of Christ, stop, they thought it was part of the show, and they began laughing. But the laughter quickly turned to angry jeers. Without a second thought, one of the gladiators plunged a sword into his body, and Telemachus fell to the sand where his dying words were, in the name of Christ, stop. Suddenly, a strange thing happened. A hush fell over the Colosseum. In silence, the crowd began streaming to the exits until everyone had left the Colosseum. The year was A.D. 391, and that was the last battle to the death between gladiators in the Roman Colosseum. Never again did that great stadium host men killing each other for the entertainment of the crowd, all because of one tiny voice that spoke the truth in God's name. Now, please keep in mind that I am not telling you as an individual Christian that you ought not be involved in larger issues in the society as you feel passionately about them and as you think it's wise. I'm just saying that the job of the church is to gather and perfect the saints. 
I'm just saying that the church is not a pry bar and it's not a chisel. It is a very good screwdriver. So that's my first point. The church exists to gather and perfect the saints. My second point is this. God gives spiritual gifts to each believer so that the church can gather and perfect the saints. Ephesians 4 verses 7 and 8 says that Christ ascended on high in order to give gifts to men, spiritual gifts granted to us by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul gives examples of those gifts, and he gives a, what I believe is a partial list of spiritual gifts. And there are four areas in the New Testament that deal with spiritual gifts. Several of them have a list of some sort. I don't think that those are exhaustive. I think that they're representative. In, in this first part of Ephesians chapter 4, he's, he's talking about gifts that have to do with evangelism and gifts that have to do with teaching. And, and those gifts are of great importance. They help us to understand who God is and who we are and how we should stand, or rather how we should reorient our lives towards God. And that's why the central act of Christian worship is not singing. It, it kind of drives me a little bit crazy when we call the singing worship and everything else that happens something else. No, it's all worship. It's all worship. When you give those gifts in the collection plate, that's worship. When you sing the songs, that's worship. When we bow together and pray and confess our sins, that's worship. When we lift up the needs of the congregation and the needs of the world, that's worship. It's all worship. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we baptize someone, when we administer vows of membership, when we ordain elders, it's all worship. And singing is an important part of it, but I think we've kind of maybe wrestled it out of its proper context and inflated it in some ways by simply calling it the worship. It's not the worship. It, it, it's, the central act of Christian worship also isn't celebrating communion, as Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy make communion central and, and the most important act of their worship. No, no. The, the central act of the worship of the people of God, that which the Reformation wrestled and rescued and, uh, and upheld, is the teaching and preaching of the word of God. And, and when Paul, the apostle Paul, was faced with execution, when he was at the end of his life, he wrote two letters to a guy named Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus part of the time, and he wrote one to Titus. And we have those in our Bibles as what we call the pastoral epistles. Uh, there was a, a 19th century Anglican bishop and Cambridge scholar who was very good. His name was Handley Moole. And he said, by the time Paul pens 2 Timothy, by that point in the history of the church, the infant church seemed to be dying. And, and Handley Moole said, the church trembled, humanly speaking, on the brink of annihilation. So it, it's, not, it's not even been 100 years yet since Jesus died and rose. It's not even been 50 years yet since Jesus died and rose. And already the future of the church is looking shaky and the apostles are, are dying. They're being picked off one by one. And here's the apostle Paul and, and he's writing from prison. 
And he was writing from what was known as the Mamertine prison, which was basically just a giant open hole in the ground. Parts of it still exist in Rome. You can, you can see it. They built a church over it, so it's no longer an open hole in the ground. But, but this wasn't the cushy house confinement of the Apostle Paul that we see in Acts. This was essentially death row. And so Paul's about to exit this world. He's about to leave a severely weakened church in the hands of Timothy and men like him. And I, I, I just want you to see this. Second Timothy is the very last thing he wrote before he died, or at least it's the last thing that he wrote that we have. And I want you to turn to the book of Second Timothy in your Bibles. So Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and chapter four. So, so if this, if you're writing the last letter to someone about how to take care of an organization that you're concerned is not gonna make it. You, you, you'd really wanna make things clear, wouldn't you? you? You'd wanna say, this is what's important. Make sure you do this. What does Paul say? Ephesians chapter, or, or 2 Timothy chapter four and verse one. I charge you. Whenever somebody's charged, that is a very solemn thing. I charge you. I am placing you under a holy obligation. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearance, by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What did he say there? He didn't say celebrate the sacraments. He didn't say the most important thing is to sing lots of songs. He didn't say engage in lots of activities. He said preach the word. That is what will preserve the church going forward. You see, the confidence of heaven is in the Bible. You remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the parable that Jesus told, and the rich man's in hell, and 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 and. Lazarus is in heaven and he can see him and he, and he goes, you know, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers. They're still alive and I, they're not on the right path and I don't want them coming here. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. And the rich man says, you, know, you don't understand, they're not listening to Moses and the prophets, but if somebody comes back from the dead, they'll listen to him. And Abraham says, if they're not gonna listen to Moses and the prophets, then when somebody comes back from the dead, that won't affect them either. The confidence of heaven is in the Bible. The word of God, rightly preached, rightly upheld. In, in 1 Timothy, before the situation is quite so dire, and Paul still entertains some hope of being released by the Roman authorities, he still says very much the same thing. In 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, Timothy, until I come to you, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, those gifts that we're talking about here, the apostles and evangelists and teachers and pastors, those are, are necessary for the church to accomplish its goal, but they're not sufficient. 
And, and Ephesians 4 shows us that they're not sufficient. In our call to worship, we read 1 Corinthians 12. And, and it's, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, that, that the Spirit has given, quote, varieties of gifts. And he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There, I, I think there's a slide for that. I can't ever see. Is there a slide for that? No, okay. So, so that's a super important verse. Let's take it apart. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Who gets spiritual gifts? Everyone. To each. It's not only some people. It's to each is given a gift. Are you in Christ? Do you have a spiritual gift? At least one, right? If you are a born-again Christian, you have a spiritual gift. Maybe more than one. And it's not a natural ability or talent. You did not have it before you came to Christ. It's a supernatural gift, and it was given to you when you were born again. Now, it may express itself through a natural talent. Like, I was a reasonably good speaker before I, I became born again, but that's not the same as the ability to preach. It's two different things. I was a, a reasonably good writer before I was born again, but that's not the ability to, to convey the word of God in written form and impact lives. That's, it's a spiritual gift. But Now, why? Why were you given that spiritual gift. Wait, it doesn't say it's for your own private enjoyment and edification? No. There's no evidence for somebody being given a, a supernatural spiritual gift in the New Testament so that they can use it by themselves for their own benefit. Spiritual gifts are given for the common good. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. They're given to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we reach unity and maturity. So, so God gave you a gift, and he gave it to you so that you could play your part in the organization and the organism that is the church, the body of Christ, so that in the exercise of your gift, the body of Christ would be strengthened and built up and bring people to maturity. In other words, the saints would be perfected. Spiritual gifts are for the common good. Spiritual gifts, and what happens when the saints are built up? The building up of the body of Christ until we reach unity and maturity. And here's my third point this morning. God expects you to use the gift that he gave you to build up the body of Christ. He expects you to use that. And, and the body of Christ for you is the place and the people you belong to, where you've committed yourself. You've taken vows of membership. You said, these are my people. This is my place. Not perfect. Might even drive me crazy. But these are my people. It's, it's like getting married, isn't it? Did you know when you got married how absolutely freaking crazy your spouse could drive you? And were there times where you said, I just want out of this? Well, why didn't you? Because Jesus put you in it. And you made a commitment to God and to that person. And all kinds of things and all kinds of other people, they're held together in a healthy way by that commitment. 
children only flourish best within the confines of that commitment. And, and you go, and so I, I'm sure my wife has been there. The only thing that's keeping me here right now is that I told God I'd stay here right now. I'm, sure, I'm almost positive she said that. She never said it to me. Because I'm not easy to live with sometimes. It's surprising, but it's true. There's a commitment there. And, and, and when you've got your gift, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm giving myself to this place. I'm giving myself to this people. I've got this gift. He's given it to me for a reason to use in this place. They must need it somewhere. There's a, there's a wonderful little hymn. There's a work for Jesus that none but you can do. He did not give gifts to build up other Christian organizations outside of the church at the expense of the church. If you have to choose where to put your time, where to put your energy, where to put your giftedness, your priority should be the body of Christ where you belong because that's what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, if the church had done what Jesus says and everybody had used their gifts, there wouldn't be a parachurch. There'd just be the church. Because we'd be doing what we were supposed to do. The New Testament knows nothing, nothing of a congregation where 80 or 90% of the people are passive consumers and 10 to 20% of the people do all the work of, of the church. The New Testament also knows nothing of congregations where the functions of the church are carried on by paid professional staff so that all the rest of the people, all they have to do is sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. Rather than seeking out a church based on how high a quality and extensive the professionally administered programs are, the New Testament believer should be finding a congregation where there's a lack of ministry in his or her area of giftedness and then fling themselves into the ministry of that church. And you know what happens when you exercise your spiritual gift? It's joy. It's, it's joy. You, you, may, you may be tired at the end of it, but you... But you go, man, that was good. That was good. That's how you know you're exercising your spirit. That is to me the most infallible way to know whether you're spiritually gifted in an area or not. Try a bunch of, you know, you can have all these little inventories and I'm, I'm convinced that most of these inventories are really based on discovering your natural talents or your preferences or what you, what you wish your spiritual gift was. But if you go and just try a bunch of different things and you come away for, from it at the end and you're like, Oh my gosh, I thought it would never end. <laughs> and that happens two or three times. That's probably not your gift. But if you find yourself at the end of the day going, that was awesome. I might be tired, but that was awesome. Then that's your spiritual gift. And here's my final point. Ephesians 4, 13 and 14 tells us that the faithful use of the spiritual gifts we've been given will lift us out of spiritual childhood and into spiritual maturity, both as individuals and as the body of Christ. It tells us that we will grow into a unity that can't be shaken. It tells us we won't be tossed about by winds of doctrine or by cunning human ideas or by deceitful schemes. 
But the corollary to that is a failure to exercise our spiritual gifts will leave us weak, vulnerable, unstable, divided, and immature. Paul says if you use them, wonderful things will happen. If you don't use them, bad things will happen. At best, nothing will happen. At worst, destructive things will happen. You cannot have the Lord Jesus give you a tool, personally, tell you what to do with that tool, and then either fail to use it or decide to use it in some other way than what he's commanded and expect his blessing on your life or on your church. You just can't do it. It doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't go, okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's the screwdriver. Go take out screws or put in screws. And you go, nah. You can't. And, and, and then go, oh, Jesus, bless me. Let me find joy in you. Answer my prayers. Grow me up. And he's like, no. First things first. You do what I said. And I'll bless you. And it just doesn't work that way. God blesses obedience. He doesn't bless disobedience. He eventually judges disobedience, often severely. The job of the church is to gather and perfect the saints. The faithful use of the spiritual gifts we've been given is an integral part of that. And the prospering of God's cause in the world directly hinges on whether or not Bible-believing, born-again, Evangelical Christians will simply do what he said. The ball is in our court. He or she who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord Jesus Christ, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight.